0: When you enjoy it as much as we do, you don't realise the sacrifices you're making. Mm. It's only when you get old, the way I am now, that you look back, you realise how much you, you do sacrifice over the years.
1: This is Football Stories, a podcast that tells some of the more interesting stories from the beautiful game, from the people involved in those tales. It's not about big names, this podcast series. It's about maybe the people behind the scenes who have contributed to some of those big moments you may not know the names but you're going to recognize some of the stories and that is certainly the case with today's podcast guests i'm talking to gary and colin lewin who are two brothers both with arsenal and in the case of gary with england as well now you might remember in the 2014 world cup you would have seen gary lewin celebrating daniel sturridge's goal against italy you'll remember it because he slipped over dislocated his ankle and had to be stretchered off the pitch. We'll be talking about some of his highs with England too in this podcast though. We also chat about Daniel Sturridge and his struggles with injury and about the inner workings of Arsenal Football Club under the man himself that changed Premier League football, Arsene Wenger. Gary and Colin Lewin are today's podcast guests and they are the physios.
0: Thanks Jim, nice to be here. Hey Jim.
1: Nice to speak to you. Well, there's absolutely loads I want to talk to you about today because you've had or you've helped get some of the biggest names in sport onto the pitch during your careers. And that has no doubt impacted some of the biggest sporting moments, certainly in Premier League history. But I want to go right the way back, if we can start at the beginning, if that's okay. Because for most six-year-olds, they won't wake up one day and go, I want to be a sports physiotherapist. Colin, I know you had a slightly more traditional dream than that. You wanted to be at the real sharp end of football when you were growing up. You wanted to be a footballer.
2: No, no, you got the wrong one there, Jim. That's Gary. <laughs> I was nowhere near good enough, Jim. No
0: chance.
1: <laughs> Gary, it was you that had the more traditional dream. You wanted to be at the sharp end and be a footballer.
0: Yeah, in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, I was a goalkeeper. And in those days, they didn't have academies. So I played as a youngster. I played for West Ham, Arsenal, um, Fulham, had a trial game at Leicester. And at 14, I signed for Arsenal and uh, did a two-year schoolboy forms with Arsenal, and then I signed the apprentice professional forms when I was 16. And then, unfortunately, was released by the club when I was 18, having played in the, the old-fashioned youth team, South East Counties mm-hmm. League, and a few reserve team games.
1: What's it like getting that news at the age of 18? When you've been in the system from the age of 14, as you say, you've been for all these significant London clubs, and then at 18, someone just goes, sorry, you're just not good
0: enough. What's, what's that like? It's devastating, it's the end of your world. Um, you can't think of anything else. Your world just implodes really. It, it, I must admit it took me a while to to get over it. Then I had some life-changing decisions to make. i had um I had the opportunity to go on trial at places like South End Orient and a few other smaller London clubs. but I got some really good advice from people around me, one of which was Fred Street, who was the Arsenal and England physio at the time, mm. and said to me, why don't you think about going into physiotherapy? And um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Physiotherapy was one option. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into the police force. I fancied being a PE teacher. But whatever I wanted to do, I needed A-levels. So yeah. I left Arsenal in 82 and the summer. And in again, in those days, things have changed dramatically now. You used to stay at sixth form in your school to do your A-levels. If you failed your A-levels, you could go back and do a third year in the sixth form and retake them. So I went back to my old school, Redden Court School in Harold Wood, and I actually did two A-levels in that third year. So I was classified as a third-year sixth-former, but managed somehow to scrape through two A-levels. And at that time, I carried on playing. I played at Barnet, who were in the Conference League then. Barry Fry was the manager. And I played a year at Barnett whilst I studied for my A-levels. And as the year went on, I decided that actually it was physiotherapy I wanted to do. And I applied to Guy's Hospital and I got accepted to start training as a physiotherapist in, um, in September 1983. Do you think any part of that decision to go into
1: the physiotherapy side of it was because you'd had that kind of rejection from the sport? So you'd had your dream taken away from you because of people deemed you not to maybe be able to reach the level that that you'd have to reach. But I guess for other people, they might have that dream taken away from them because of a serious injury, for example, and you could have some kind of impact for that for others.
0: Yeah, partly I think the, the, the I think the course of action really was the devastation of being released, and then the the dream of not playing football sinking in. Next thing, reality sets in. in what do you do? And then to have that option of staying within sport as a physiotherapist mm. then suddenly becomes quite attractive. I had no idea that my career would pan out the way it did initially or the way it has longer term. At the time, I was my, my plan was at the time was to carry on playing football, work as a physiotherapist somewhere, and then if I was good enough, I'd get taken back up by the football league clubs and carry on being a professional footballer, I retired, and then set up a private practice and work as a physio. So that was the cunning plan, <laughs> um, as it turned out. Fred Street left Arsenal in the summer of 83 and a physio called Roy Johnson took over. Roy was full-time assistant to Fred, but Roy decided he didn't want to have a full-time assistant. He wanted to work on his own. And in those days, you didn't need to be a chartered physio. You just needed a first-aid certificate or an FA diploma to work within football. So the club actually came back to me and said to me, how do you fancy working with the reserve team, the youth team and the schoolboys?" as a physio whilst you trained as a physiotherapist at guys hospital so at 19 i had the decision to make where i packed up playing and i went back to arsenal as the reserve team and youth team physio i did um, monday to thursday was evening training nights of the schoolboys. saturday reserve team football sunday was academy football so i was doing nine till five in the hospital and then evenings at weekends getting my hands on wow. experience sports medicine the downside to that was I had to pack up playing the irony of it was that season I think I played 12 reserve games because I had a lot of injuries <laughs> and I actually ended up playing as the physio and the goalkeeper in the Arsenal reserve team Do you get a bonus for that? Yeah, I've got double what I normally get and double, <laughs> double nothing's nothing.
1: <laughs> so you've got your feet under the table at Arsenal by that stage. Colin, what was it for you then that got you into that period of your career? Did you wake up as a six-year-old and go, I want to be a physiotherapist?
2: No, I think i had done my GCSEs. I was going through A-levels. I just picked the ones that I thought I was good at. And I was just thinking about what to do next. I had no real big plans. Obviously being family, Gary would pop over and see us every now and now on a Sunday. Hmm. And uh, we were chatting about it and... know he convinced me to go for it and at that stage there was no hint at all that i'd be going sport it was just the idea that i'd go into physiotherapy because the vast majority end up in hospitals and stuff like that but that gave me some sort of target gary seemed quite passionate about it I always quite liked chatting to him about that sort of stuff ended up doing that degree and loved it in the hospitals loved the rotations that i did as a student and, and really enjoyed it as a career and then yeah soon after university gary asked me to go to
1: arsenal You were both at Arsenal for a long period of time. Gary, you went off to work with the England national team. But Colin, you were there right till the end of the Arsene Wenger era. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Obviously, Gary left two thousand eight to go full time with England. I became head physio, head of medical, whatever fancy name they called it. Mm. Um, And then Arsene was moved on, left at the end of 2018, the very next day. Uh, me and the other physios I was working with were informed that there was a restructure and so on. Yeah, so I left the day after Arsenal, pretty much. Yeah, so I saw, I was there pre-Arsenal and post-Arsenal. <laughs> not, not many can say that.
1: <laughs> from the from the outside looking into Arsenal at that time, it felt like Arsene Wenger was a man who knew every single corridor of that club, knew exactly what everyone was doing, knew every inch of every event that happened be it on or off the pitch what did that make him like as a man to work for was he someone that kind of let you get on with what you're doing or did you feel like you were being overlooked constantly
2: well from my side of it he was a very fair man he was always very good on the medical side of it and always accepted our point of view now Mm. that might because we've been working with him for so long maybe we established a trust the same as Gary did but no, we were rarely questioned. I mean, you were you were put under pressure. You were, yeah. you know, you were made to work and to the level that he would expect because he was a, he was the first one there some mornings and the last one to leave. He was a hardworking man, so he set standards. Don't get me wrong, but he was never an overlooker. I never felt he was a micromanager. But you're right, he did he did have his hand in pretty much every single pie at that club, and didn't do a bad job, in fairness. <laughs>
0: What you got to remember, when if Arsene first come on board, the, the the number of staff was minimal. So Arsene come on board as a manager. He bought Bora Primarakin as his assistant, and Pat Rice was assistant manager. Myself was there with Colin. We only had part time doctors in those days. Um, we had no. Um, we had one masseur. Didn't have any science, sports science. We didn't have any psychology. We didn't have any data analysts. No fitness coach. No fitness coach. We were a really tight staff. Yeah. And we all mucked in and did everything as a staff. And we were to say that he was in control of everything, well, that's not an understatement, because at the end of the day there was only five or six of us. So it was easily controlled. Now, I left in two thousand and eight. I would say just before I left, it started to increase. We had a fitness coach in, we had two masseurs in. And I think the staff started to grow and I mean um, I let Colin go into the number of staff that were there when he left I mean it suddenly became a massive entourage of people that become more difficult to manage and I, and it's something that Arsene did very well but I think the strength of him that I would certainly say from my experiences was he allowed people to do the job that he employed them to do mm. and he was confident and very loyal to his staff and yes he would discuss things yes he would give opinions but he respected your own professionalism and the way you worked and would allow you to do it your way. All he wanted from his staff was honesty, integrity, and hard work and, and professionalism. And I think he got that from all of his staff. And it was, we had a saying at Arsenal that was there when I was there as a schoolboy, and it was to remember who you are, where you are, and who you represent. And Arsenal came in and really just continued that, that um, sentiment, really.
1: As you say, during his period in the Premier League, the game changed hugely a lot of that was credited to him for kind of driving that change as well including an approach to sports science and that aspect you guys must have been heavily involved in that would you say some of it was driven by yourselves or would it be Arsene Wenger coming in and going look there's this new approach they're doing in Germany I think we should try it here
2: Arsene gets a lot of credit for that I think he'd be the first to admit it wasn't solely down to him particularly. He certainly overhauled the nutrition side of it in that we were in a training ground owned by UCL at the time, and the lunches available were, you know, decent school dinners, nothing more. Mm. And he thought that was just wrong. You know, he, he wanted to change that to more athletic fueling, if you know what I mean. So he certainly overhauled that where he could. That became a lot more straightforward once we got our own training ground in 99
0: yeah. i mean that was a big thing cole wasn't it when we didn't even own our own training ground there was days we weren't allowed there and he couldn't understand <clears throat> that our professional football club did not have its own facilities so he really drove that as well in that uh, we suddenly become self-sufficient we could work anytime we wanted day or night we had our own facilities we controlled the quality of the food the type of food we're eating the nutrition the hydration the type of training i do agree with colin I, I, I don't think that Arsene drove the changes. What Arsene brought to the table was everything we did, he wanted top quality. And the culture within football in pre-Arsene was that everything was done in-house. So as a physio, you would end up doing everything. And if you wanted help with any kind of professional person, you would send the player out, I don't know, see an osteopath or... To see a specialist. Arson's attitude is, well, no, actually, we should be using people and employing people that are actually good at these roles. And it then enabled us as staff to start looking outside of the box and bringing things in that we knew were out there and we could bring it to the table because the club would spend the money and allow us to do so. Mm. So I think it was a combination of Arson bringing some new ideas, some new thoughts but also changing the culture of football to allow the staff to actually go into these areas as well.
1: How did the players react to those new ideas? And thinking particularly when you first went into Arsenal, where, where there were some big-name players who had some success, but also had a little bit of a, a reputation, if you like. So I'm thinking particularly, say, for example, changing their diet. And we know from the Fabio Capello era at England was it Fabio Capella that decided players couldn't have tomato sauce anymore, and they were supposed to be kind of an yep. out, outrage in the camp.
0: No, what... no mayonnaise, no tomato sauce, no butter.
1: What was it? What was that like? How did players react to those changes instantly when Wenger came into Arsenal and kind of started ringing the changes?
2: Those changes didn't happen because those changes are a little bit ridiculous. So <laughs> Arsenal wasn't like that. Arsenal wasn't banning ketchup and banning butter, but there was water on the tables rather than fruit juice and stuff like that. But the players at the time, if you look at the squad when he joined, were all early thirties, you might you might correct me on that, but they're all sort of early thirties. Dixon, Winterburn, Adams, mm. Balk, you know, and these sort of players that the chance to extend their contracts, not even contracts, to extend their careers by another year or two by doing the right thing was a very welcome thing to them. You know, the money had just come into the game, they were doing really well. Mm. And so if they felt they were getting another year or two on their career by doing these things right. I mean, there was a lot more stretching going on after training. Things were done a bit better, simple as that. And I think those lads especially bought into it. You know, they're all on record as saying that.
0: I think the biggest thing Arsene brought to the table was we all read about the sports science and nutrition and the hydration. He brought a bit of all of that to the table. For me, the biggest thing he brought to the table was the culture in football was as long as you performed on the Saturday, it really didn't matter what you did during the week. So some players wouldn't train Monday, Tuesday, do a bit on a Thursday, light session Friday, play Saturday. As long as they performed, the club and the manager didn't care. Mm. Arsene brought a culture to the club where training was as important as playing. And if you train properly, you perform properly on a Saturday. And he actually changed the culture of the players where training became very important. The way they prepared for games, the way they trained, the way they slept, what they ate. And the whole build-up to the, the match at the weekend was as important as the match. And I, that, for me, was the biggest cultural change that he brought to the table.
1: Now, one of the players that I'm sure crossed your path at your time at Arsenal would have been Jack Wiltshire, who, for me, is a perfect example of a young player who had a massive promise, but then has struggled with injury and maybe failed to reach his potential which is something that from outside the sport looking in it seems to be something we see more and more young players breaking through getting a lot of game time at a young age but then their bodies can't quite cope with the pressure that's put on it maybe is that something we're going to see more and more of in the world of football as more youngsters get more of a break early doors
0: i would argue against you i don't think it's becoming more common um i can go back far as people like jonathan woodgate even michael owen yeah that picked up injuries at a very young age. Stuart Robson at Arsenal in the 80s. He went on to your team, West Ham, after he left Arsenal. He was going to be the next England captain. The difference is, everything that happens in football now is front page, back page. And you're reading about it every day. I think this is a common factor in the sport. And I think if you look (coughs) at all sports, you will find similarities when players that are still growing and developing are exposed to high-intensity sport sometimes their bodies can't cope with it plus if you look back at these players they all pick up a significant mechanical injury whether it be a a broken bone whether it be a joint injury and it's as though they never really fully recover from that initial setback and unfortunately it's just life that sometimes players never recover from a significant injury which if you look at all the research into sports medicine, one of the biggest factors in instances of injury is previous medical history.
2: Obviously, it's a different game now to what it was in 2000, let alone 1990, <laughs> let alone 1980. The athletic ability of these players now has to be unbelievable. But what's changed enormously, I think, in the last 10, 15 years has been the, the role of athletic development in academy football. So these boys now, obviously, I'll use Arsenal as an example, They've got a good few players there now that have been through an athletic development program since the age of about 10, 11 years old. Not all clubs will be doing it. What do you mean so, by
1: athletic development?
2: Um, specific strength work. Right. So uh, academies. Rewind 10, 15 years. Academies were seeing players playing football, sending them home, coaching them, making them better footballers, of course, but probably not concentrating too much on making them better athletes. I think the realisation has happened, certainly in the bigger clubs, that You've got to create athletes as well as footballers now, otherwise they don't make it. The injuries they suffer when the step-up eventually comes to the first team Mm. can be too great for some of them. Nowadays, youngsters are managing to make the step-up because they're so athletically developed, as well as the footballing side of it with the coaches, they're managing to stay there. And there's no doubt you compare the 18-year-olds breaking into the teams now compared to 10, 15, 20 years ago, they're better athletes. Mm.
0: And I think it goes a step further than that is historically, a player might break into the first team 16, 17, 18-year-old and uh, is going to be a fantastic player. What they do is they step up to play for the first team, but they also step up to do the first team training. So what you do then get is you get an immature skeleton and an immature athlete jumping from a certain level of intensity and um, athletic movement with players of his own age and strength thrown in to training and working day in and day out with men who have been working in the profession for 10 years. Now, if you go to a new manager who's got an 18-year-old and say, boss, I don't think he should train fully today. Maybe we should leave him out of the game. and Or he doesn't train at all today and we take him in the gym. The manager would look at you as though you come from Mars <laughs> because all the manager wants to do is get him ready for the game on Saturday. So as Colin said, if they're coming in at that age, having six, seven, eight years of athletic development with strength, power, conditioning, and movement patterns, they're going to tolerate that sudden increase in load a lot better. The second thing on that is they go from playing academy football once a week, not only does the intensity and the power increase, but suddenly they're playing three times a week. Mm. And how many times have you heard oh, they're young enough, they can tolerate the load, they can tolerate they're fit enough and they're young enough, let them get on with it. Well, actually, they've got an immature skeleton. They can't always get on with it.
1: With that in mind, there must have been some players that you've seen passing across your physio tables throughout the years at different clubs and they're doing different work that had real potential, but maybe didn't quite reach that level because their bodies let them down or they picked up injury. Who would you say was the one player that could have gone on to great things, but maybe was curtailed? because of those things?
2: Good question. Obviously, I think Abu Dhabi suffered a nasty injury before he really got the chance to get going. I think there's no doubt that injury affected him later on, quite a significant fracture dislocation. That definitely affected him biomechanically later on in his career for the next few years. So there's one that was probably going to be a hell of a player, but that injury certainly cost him.
0: I mean, I I referred to one earlier on. I mean, he did have a good career in football, but he could have been a lot better with Jonathan Woodgate. Mm. I'm going to throw another one at you that had an incredible career in football, but you asked a question what he could have been like if he hadn't got injured Was Ledley King. I thought Ledley was one of the best players ever to play for England.
2: Finished at 27?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he had this really nasty knee injury which curtailed his career. And what he could have been, I think uh, nobody would ever, would ever really know. And I think I think if... You gave us a few days to look at it. I think you go back in history, you'll find a lot of players like that, that you could say some don't make it fully because of injury. I mentioned Stuart Robson earlier on in the interview. Um, but you're going to get a lot of players also that had, a, and Jack Waltshire comes into this, that have had a good career, despite what people say, but what they could have been if they hadn't have picked up their significant injuries. And I, I think there's there's quite a lot of players like that. Daniel Sturridge is another one that springs to mind and being for the biggest clubs in the country, has had a great career, but has been plagued with injury over the years.
1: It's interesting you mentioned Daniel Sturridge because he was a player that I wanted to bring up purely because he's a player that often people question his mental state more than his physical state and suggest that the injuries that he picks up may be aren't as significant to keep him out of the game for the length of time he's been out. When players do get injured, what proportion of it is mental and what proportion of it is physical? Is there kind of a a level where, for want of a better word, to use almost a bit of a Luddite expression, they just need to get on with it?
0: I've got to be a bit honest. I mean, I've worked with Daniel many, many years and um, I get a little bit angry by how people report these sort of things. Mm. At the end of the day, players are injured and they're injured, they're injured. You have clinical diagnosis you have scans they have injuries there's no doubt that mentally or the mental aspect of it plays a big part in their recovery from injury because mentally sometimes it's very difficult especially when you're an explosive dynamic player to get rid of that apprehension that this could happen again could it happen again and i think that's the same with any sport I do think. Like if a dog
1: bites you, you might not go and stroke that dog straight away, I guess.
0: Well, exactly. I mean, and and I do think that sometimes there have been some very cheap shots out there when people like Daniel have been bracketed under this. And I think you could go through a lot of other players. So, look, I, I think that's unfair. I don't think it's right. But undoubtedly, the mental side of it plays a massive part. And I think that's obviously why now psychology is becoming to play a big part in all aspects of sport, not only in football, but all, all sport. I think now there's been a lot of research done,
2: certainly on the ACLs, you know, the cruciate comebacks. There's been a lot of research done on how prepared they felt mentally going back. We can test them physically, we can test all sorts of stuff and really give them evidence that they're quicker, faster, stronger, can jump higher. But it's only fairly recently that the psychological questionnaires have come into play and they can reveal an awful lot. And there's an awful lot of research going on in the last five years about that. It's certainly something I would do now. If I was bringing back an ACL, I'd certainly have them on the, uh, the psychology questionnaires throughout their comeback, when I probably wouldn't have done 10 years ago.
1: The latest news about your team. The biggest stories from your terraces. The most exciting moments from your week. Forget the clickbaits and listen to real fans bringing you real news every single day from the Premier League. Listen and subscribe now wherever you find your podcasts by searching Football Social Daily. You guys must build some really deep relationship with these players, particularly the ones who are suffering from injury, because you're seeing them on a daily basis, you're keeping them playing, you're keeping their careers on track. That must develop a sense of respect and gratitude on their parts and a pretty powerful bond.
2: Yeah, with some, I think so, yeah. You know, you can't get on with everyone brilliantly all Mm. the time. But when you're looking after someone who's injured and you're seeing them day in, day out, you're spending more time with them than your family sometimes. And, uh, yeah, of course, you're going to build a relationship and you see them succeed after that. It's rewarding, you know. But there was a little thing going around about physios sometimes being too close to players. And I think that is a load of rubbish, really. I think you have to be close to the players. Whether you're the doctor or the physio, you do end up forming a bond with certain players, especially if you're spending that time with them in a difficult part of their lives, you know? So, yeah, there's plenty I can say that I've done really well with as part of a, an injury comeback. And there's some that don't naturally lend themselves to that relationship.
0: But, yeah, you do. Well, it's like life in general. I, I used the phrase ever such a lot, football family. Mm. And you become part of a football family. And uh, But, like, for families in general, sometimes it's very close, sometimes it's not so close. But... um you do build that relationship over time.
1: We often talk about players and you mentioned seeing them more than you see your families. We talk about players dedicating the, 20 years of their life or however long they're lucky enough to have that professional contract dedicating it to football they're playing games on boxing day they're playing games on new year's day but they're awarded for that at the same time they have multi-million pound contracts is that the same for you guys behind the scenes do you kind of have to if you're in the game at that level do you kind of have to just give everything else up for a set period of time
0: we don't get the multi-million pound contract (laughs) I'll give you an example. I worked at Arsenal for 22 years. Before that, I was a player. When I did the reserve team, I came in and worked Christmas. When I went to the FA, I had my first Christmas day off with my family in 25 years. Wow. Now, I'm sure Colin will say the same when he left Arsenal in 2018. That was probably his first Christmas day off for about the same sort of period. I recently went to a wedding where my granddaughter was a bridesmaid, and my wife glowingly turned around to me and said, You do realize our three daughters have been bridesmaids five times and you've never seen them. Those sort of things hit home. They're the sacrifices you make. But when you enjoy it as much as I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of Colin as well. When you enjoy it as much as we do, you don't realize the sacrifices you're making. Mm. It's only when you get old the way I am now that you look back, you realize how much you you do sacrifice over the years. But you don't realise how hard you're working because you enjoy it so much. So I, th- I think that's the compromise.
2: And you're with a bunch of people who are also doing the same thing. It's not like you're sat on your own on a Christmas Eve or a Christmas day. You know, you sat with the rest of the medical team, the players, the staff. So everyone's in the same boat. That does help, certainly. But yet, you, you miss weddings, you mm-hmm. miss state you miss birthday parties, you, you miss an awful lot. But There's no chance of you going to them, so you never even consider the fact that you Mm. might be able to. Unless it's in June, (laughs) you're not going. Yeah, I didn't ever really see it as a massive sacrifice, but obviously when the kids are young, you don't see as much of them as you'd like to.
1: When you are making that trade-off, it must feel sometimes that, well, I'm I'm putting all this in, so I I want a bit of the the credit coming back the other way. And there must be moments where you've been watching games where a player that you've worked hard to prepare for a game or to get fit for a season... (laughs) offers something really significant, does something on the pitch that changes the game and it must fill you with immense pride in that moment to kind of go, that was me. That that I paid a played a part in that.
2: Yeah, but you don't you're not looking for recognition for it. You know yourself. You're not looking around thinking someone please congratulate me, you know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Roll onto the pitch celebrating.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can think of loads of examples. But you know, it is I suppose the same as everyone really you quite like it when there's a bit of recognition and praise after the game. Per Murtack is a good example. He played his first game of the season in the 2017 cup final when we beat Chelsea. That was his first start of the season due to various injuries he had. And after the game, the owners were in the dressing room and the CEO came in and said, "Uh, you know, Per has got through 90 minutes, well done. And I'd barely touched him. I'd barely touched him for nine (laughs) months. The other physios have been working with him. And so, you know, you you point in the right direction. You know, it wasn't me, it was those fellas over there. But just to have that level of person coming to find you afterwards to recognise it, even though it wasn't me exactly, it was just good to have that, you know. You don't, you don't go around chasing it. You know yourself, what you've done.
1: You speak about your time in the game with huge pride and fondness, but you've taken that step away now and you've opened your own sporting clinic in Essex. Why did you decide to take the step away from professional football and into kind of the private sector?
0: Needed a job. Okay. <laughs> uh, <nah. clears throat> no. We've discussed it over the years several times. and I mean, I'm 10 years older than Colin, so... I came out from England in 2016 and I did a year at West Ham and then I came out from West Ham at the same time and Colin kind of left Arsenal. And I think we both probably would have stayed in football given if the opportunity had come up, but it would have to be the right opportunity. So when it wasn't going to come up, we discussed loosely about how do you fancy doing the clinic? And one thing that when we just start talking about it is we just didn't want any old clinic. We wanted something that was special, something that we could almost take out to Joe public of what it's like to be in, in a professional sport. Mm. So we wanted to deliver something that was a little bit unique, but when patients come into the clinic, they actually feel as though they're being treated like a, an an elite athlete, whether it is um, someone that works in the bank down the road that plays tennis at the weekends at their shoulder. So we had this vision when we first started of what we wanted and, that's now come to fruition. We've got what we want. We've got a clinic that we're very proud of with a facility, a rehab gym and the clinical rooms that we're really happy with. But also with our contacts in the sports medicine world with medical pathways that we can create for people, whether they're a weekend warrior or semi-professional sports person, or even we're still seeing some professional sports people come in. So yeah, we wanted to deliver something that was something that we got used to an environment we were used to working in but would be open to all really
1: i absolutely love that ethos the idea that and this is speaking from a aging footballer point of view that wonders how many more years he's got in him and picks up injuries all the time that an injury a knock that i get that will keep me out for three months would keep a professional out because of the levels of care for a much shorter period of time so an idea that the as you say weekend warriors like me can access that kind of facility and that kind of service is a brilliant thing Three quick questions to finish on, if that's okay. okay. One, a career highlight. So I want you to imagine there's an empty frame in your new clinic and you could take a snapshot of one moment you go that that was the pinnacle for me. What would be in that frame? It
2: has to be one, you're really putting your pressure on us.
0: <laughs> I think Gary's is fairly simple. Anfield eighty nine. Yeah. Winning the league at Anfield in eighty nine, that was unbelievable. I'm gonna be guilty, I'm gonna be greedy now. I'm gonna say from a club perspective, Anfield eighty nine. Mm. From an England perspective, wow! Germany away, beating them 5-1 in Munich, oh, watching yeah. 6,000 fans behind the goal during the Dam Busters. <laughs> that was special. That was really special.
1: Is that the kind of moment where you can just close your eyes and you're instantly taken back there with the kind of sounds and the feeling?
0: Well, I'm an, I'm an emotional old so so I cried both <laughs> times. It, it just takes your breath away. and I mean, I was lucky. I, I did 230-odd games for England, and from the first to the last game... I was the proudest man on earth and when they played the national anthem the hairs would stand up in the back of my head. It doesn't matter what game it was and to do the World Cups and the Olympics I, I, I just pinch myself sometimes I've been so lucky but unfortunately you asked for two single moments so I picked out those two. I could have gone, I could have gone on for a long time. I've you been actually asked for one but you did two. <laughs> <laughs> it's taken yours Colin.
2: <laughs> no, no, it hasn't taken mine. Uh, yeah, I'm torn between two. The final whistle in 2004, when we realised we'd gone unbeaten a whole season, mm. was big. I don't think we realised at that moment, really, how big it was. So, mm. I think if you're looking for a moment, probably my first FA Cup final win as the head physio was in 2014. We were 2-0 down against Hull, Hull City. City yeah. Probably should have been 3-0 down. And the world was ended on that bench really was ending because we hadn't even considered we could lose that game. Mm. And to come back and win it 3-2 in extra time, it was, yeah, a real release of emotion and, you know, managed to swerve that huge disappointment that would have been had we lost it. Okay, we were lucky we went 2015, 2017 as well, but the first one will always stick in my mind, especially being so close to losing it.
1: Some incredible moments there. What one thing would you guys have done differently? If there was a sliding door moment, one decision that you could have made that would have taken you down a different path, what would it have been? Oh, press
0: pause quickly to think about that. (laughs) Um, From a career perspective, I'm going to say nothing because I just couldn't have been more humbled, proud and delighted with the way the career went. Mm. If I'm being funny, I would say... (laughs) not be a crap goalkeeper and make it as a professional
1: footballer. (laughs) So, One final question. It's something I've always wondered. So I've always wanted a professional physio's view on this because nowadays you see players reacting to getting tackled or fouled in a completely different way to they would have 20 years ago. And I go past my local park on a regular basis and I see kids playing football, getting tackled, spending five minutes rolling around on the floor afterwards. Is there a reason why that has crept into football? Is it that athletes are so finely tuned now that they can take a small knock and it sends them into pain and it it is kind of like a, a instant worry or a concern that they might have picked up a serious injury or is it pure play acting
0: i would say neither i actually think it's a society thing i think you see how people react in general in society everything now is televised everything now is on social media it's I mean, in my, when I first started in football, you used to read reports in newspapers about what happened in the game to find out. I remember we used to come out of grounds on a Saturday night and every city had an evening newspaper and we would read the reports of the games because that's how you could only find out what happened in the games. By the time you read the newspaper now, it's old news. And so I think everything else has become so sensationalized that I think it's no different being on the pitch. I think the pressures on the pitch of are enormous, I think the crowd pressure, the social pressure, and I think that then just goes on to people's reactions and...
2: I think I think you have to say that players, by doing that, are ensuring they get the free kick most of the time. This game has become so quick, you can't always be sure the referee is going to give it, so I think players, a lot of it is to ensure
0: that Everyone knows they've just been fouled. And it's almost an accepted part of the game. I'm not saying it should be at times, but I think it's almost an accepted part of the game. But for me, it's a society thing. I think if you look at society, not only at sport, but all aspects of society, it's probably the same.
2: And there's no way that the Premier League is anywhere near the Spanish League or the South American League for it. I think the Premier Mm. League is nowhere near that level.
1: Gary, Colin, it's been fascinating chatting to you guys. If people want to find out more about your clinic that you've got in East London, if they're a weekend warrior who's struggling to get fit, where can they find more information?
2: The website is www.lewingclinic.co.uk. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook and all that stuff at the Lewin Clinic. And we're in East London, Essex Borders. Come and see us.
1: Guys, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Fascinating to hear about your careers. Thanks very much for your time today.
0: Thank you very much indeed. All us Jim. Take care.
1: If you are that weekend warrior who wants to try Gary and Collins' healing hands, then you can search Lewin Clinic online and you'll find their practice there. That's it for today's show. Make sure you check out the other podcasts in this series. And if you came here as an Arsenal fan, and check out Football Social Daily from Sports Social. It is the only daily Premier League focused podcast that comes out every single day of the season with all the latest news and all the latest opinion discussed by fellow football fans. Search Football Social Daily wherever you find your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast, in fact, to listen to that. Make sure you subscribe to this one too because there's more to come from this series in the new year. But for now, thanks for listening. Football Stories is a Sports Social production and part of the Sports Social Podcast
2: Network. Hosted and produced by Jim Salverson with additional production support and imaging from Ant
0: McGinley.
1: Find more great shows or join the team at sport social.co.uk. Sport Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Haha, in my dentist's office.